Welcome to episode 9 of Theology and Sci-Fi, the podcast. My name is Derek V. Trout, and I'm so thankful that you've decided to join me today. I truly appreciate it. Thank you very much. Today we're staying in the printed word as we continue to look at the novel titled The Left Hand of Darkness by Ursula K. Le Guin. Now this is the second part of a two-part examination of The Left Hand of Darkness, so if you have not listened to episode 8, pause this. Go back and listen to that episode where I discussed the first half of the book before listening to this episode where we'll be discussing the second half of the book. So if you want to kind of know what's going on and be able to pick up on what happened in the first half of this and be able to follow along, it's probably going to make more sense for you to go back and listen to episode eight before you listen to this one since it's kind of a a two-part episode that we have here with this looking at the left hand of darkness by Ursula K. Le Guin. Uh, But my goodness, was that a difficult book to discuss with very serious and uncomfortable issues in that first half. And we have some of those here in the second half. And I asked the question last episode, who picked this book? And as it turns out, it was me. And I said, uh, the part of the reason I picked this book uh, is because it had hard topics. And I don't want to avoid hard topics. And while that is true, I also picked this book because it was the first novel to win the Hugo Award that was written by a female author. So the first female author to win the Hugo Award for Best Novel was Ursula K. Le Guin in The Left Hand of Darkness. That's the original reason I I bought this book and I read it and I was going to discuss it here because it was the first Hugo Award winning novel by a female author. And I stuck with the book even though it has hard topics and even though there are some there are some questioning on my part whether or not to have it remain on the list because of these hard topics. But I don't think those are something that should be avoided, so I pressed on. Now, the Hugo Awards, I want to talk about those for a little bit. Since we are a a podcast here that's about uh, science fiction, we need to talk a little bit about the Hugo Awards. The the Hugo Awards are given by what's called the World Science Fiction Society. And they're given to the best literary and on-screen works in science fiction or fantasy every year. So what happens is the, the the Hugo Awards for this year that are given in 2022 will actually be from the previous year's um, novels, short stories, TV episodes, movies, those kinds of things. And so, so it's given uh, every, every year for the previous year by the World Science Fiction Society. As a side note, though, you, yes, you, anyone can join the World Science Fiction Society and to be and that would allow you to be able to vote for the Hugo Awards. Now, there is a membership fee to be able to join the the World Science Fiction Society, but that fee also gives you admission into Worldcon, or the World Science Fiction Convention. Their next convention is going to be in Chicago in September of 2022, and I hope to be there. Uh, I hope to be there for that. For, for that. Um, Chicago is not too far away from where I'm currently at, so, so it would be great to be able to get there and, and to be able to be a part of that and to vote for Hugo Awards and all those kinds of things. But so, so you can do that if you want to. You can join the World Science Fiction Society and vote for those Hugo, Hugo Awards, but we are getting a little bit off track here. Uh, anyway, so, but, so Ursula K. Le Guin was the first woman to have a novel win the Hugo Award for Best Novel with, when, when the 16th annual uh, Hugo Awards were given. She was the winner of that. Now, I know award shows have been in the news a little more these days. Thank you to Will Smith. But if there was an award I would want to win, it would be the Hugo Award. It's not the most known or prestigious award in the world, but if I could win an award for Best Science Fiction or Fantasy Novel of the Year, the same award that Clifford D. Samak, Philip K. Dick, Isaac Asimov, Robert Heinlein, Ursula K. Le Guin, 
Frank Herbert, J.K. Rowling, and so many others have won. If I could win that award that they have won, that would be pretty cool. You can have your Grammys, you can have your Emmys, take your Oscars or your Golden Globes. All I want is the Hugo. I think that'd be pretty cool. So there you go. That's a little something about me to start this episode. If there is an award in the world that I would want to win, it would be the Hugo Award for the best science fiction novel of the year. I think that would be pretty amazing. That is the award that I would take. So there you go. There's something about me to start this episode, and let's dive in. Again, we are starting at chapter 11 in The Left Hand of Darkness, halfway through the book. So if you've not listened to episode 8, it would be a good time to go back and listen before continuing forward in this episode. And of course, if you've not read The Second Half yet, or listened to it on some kind of audiobook app, I encourage you to do so. But as always, that's not necessary. We cover it pretty well here, so you can get an idea of what's going on and also the theological themes within it. So. Before we get too far into chapter 11, though, there's something that I want to go back and discuss that's also related to chapters 1 through 10. Last episode, I mentioned that there was worry over the situation in the Sinoth Valley between Carhide and Orgorion because the thought is that this situation could lead to war, which would be very unusual on the planet Gethin. Then I said we would find out why on the next episode that would be very unusual, and here we are. So why that would be unusual is that the war is virtually unheard of, uh, virtually unheard of uh, on the planet Gethin. Uh, They don't even have a a word for it. So in chapter three, uh, I says this, I did not speak of war for a good reason. There's no word for it in Karhaidish. Trade, however, is worthwhile. So they understand trade. They can go along with that, but they do not have a word for war, and why? Because war doesn't happen on this planet. In chapter 5, we read about the Sinoth Valley. We say Tib evidently was going to press Carhide's claim into the region, precisely the kind of action which on any other world at this stage of civilization would lead to war. But on Gethin, nothing led to war. Quarrels, murders, feuds, forays, vendettas, assassinations, tortures, and abominations, all these were in the repertoire of human accomplishments. But they did not go to war. They lacked, it seemed, the capacity to mobilize. However, there's some speculation on I's part that the more advanced the nation of Oregorian becomes, they're soon going to have the ability to mobilize for war, and it's something that's a concern for him. Also in chapter 8 we read, If civilization has an opposite, it is war. Of those two things, you can have either one or the other, not both. So apparently on Gethin, they they haven't had wars. They don't have records of a war. They don't have memory of a war on this planet. That that, that hasn't happened yet. That would appear on Gethin. And that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Because war is hell. War, I, I think there is a good argument to make that war is the closest thing to hell on earth. But with that being said, the question to ask then is when, if ever, is war okay? Is war. If it is hell on earth, if that is what war is, is it ever justifiable? Well, on the BBC website, I found a pretty good short introduction into what is called the just war theory. Here's what the BBC website article titled Just War Introduction. Here's what that article says. The just war theory is a largely Christian philosophy that attempts to reconcile three things. Number one, taking human life is seriously wrong. Number two, states, nations, countries 
So states have a duty to defend their citizens and defend justice. Number three, protecting innocent life, protecting innocent human life, and defending important moral values sometimes requires willingness to use force and violence. The theory uh, specifies conditions for judging if it is just to go to war or not, and also the conditions under which that war should be fought. And although this was a, is a theory that, that's um, developed extensively by Christian theologians, it can be used by people of every faith and also by people who do not have faith. Whatever it is that this just war theory attempts to be a, a theory that not only people of, sh of faith should use, but all people should use, regardless of their religious beliefs, because war is hell so so we should take it seriously however i think that it's hard to defend a just war theory outside of a, a christian worldview and an understanding I, I think that makes it more difficult because we as christians should place a very high value on life a very high value on defending what is important and and having morals and defending our citizens and protecting the innocent and, and being able to speak up for them and being able to do things for them so so i think that it's hard to uh, to, to have a just war theory outside of a Christian worldview, to have the proper theory of war there, because then other things get into that and affect and influence this war theory. But the aim of the just war theory is to pr provide a guide to the right way for states to act in potential conflict situations. So it only applies to states. I think that's something that's interesting here, not necessarily to individuals, although an individual can use the theory to help them decide whether it is morally right or not to participate or to take part in a, in a particular war. So if you can look at these three things, taking human life is very serious, yet states have a duty to defend themselves, defend justice, and sometimes protecting innocent human life requires willingness to use force and violence. So if those three criteria are met, that we are going to take this very seriously, that this is just not going to be something that we jump off the gun and it's going to be our first reaction to, if this is done in defense of, of a country that's been attacked, that has been unprovokingly attacked, or if there is innocent human life that is being killed, that they can do nothing to defend themselves, that they can do nothing to stand out about. If those, if one of those two later criteria are met, that, that you are defending somebody who's attacking you, or if you are protecting innocent human life, if those are the criteria being used to go to war, then an individual could look at this and say, then that could be justifiable for me to go to war. But if you have another reason, if there's something else that's going on, if it's just a border dispute or if it's a, a war over natural resources, you could look at that and say, this doesn't meet the criteria and then decide whether or not you as an individual would take part in that war. So the just war theory provides useful framework for individuals and political groups to use for their discussions of possible wars. The theory is not just intended to justify wars, but it's really intended to use to also prevent them. At the core of the just war theory, it's not intended to justify wars, but it's intended to prevent them. By showing that going to war, except in certain limited circumstances, is wrong, and uh, thus motivates states to find other ways of resolving conflicts, that war should not be the first thing that we look to to resolve a conflict, that there should be other ways. It should be a, a, a last resort. So looking at that, uh, that, that's a pretty good introduction to the just war theory. 
uh, that states that if you are attacked by another country and therefore you go to war, that that is justifiable. If you are unprovokingly attacked and therefore go to war with those who have attacked you, that's justifiable. That makes sense according to the just war theory. And that one's pretty easy to see and should be understandable why that's a justifiable war. If someone attacks you, if you're defending your land, if you're defending your people, yes, that makes sense. The second point of when war is justified, however, gets a little bit trickier. This is the point that says protecting innocent human life and defending important moral values sometimes requires willingness to use force and violence. So when is that okay? When is it justifiable to enter a war to protect human life or defend moral values? I think that's a bit of a harder question to answer. And I will try to give some insights into answers in a moment, but first looking at these two points and when a country is attacked, it is justifiable to go to war with those who have attacked you. And second, that sometimes war is justifiable if you're going to war to protect innocent lives. Looking at those two things helps us to know what kind of wars are justifiable, but it also helps us to know what kind of wars are not justifiable. And just in case you're wondering, the majority of wars, the overwhelming majority of wars that have been fought on this earth would not fall under the category of justifiable wars. They wouldn't. Most wars do not meet the criteria of the just war theory. If you look at wars that we fought in the, the 20th century, so from 1900 until 2002-ish. Why 2002? Because that's what Wikipedia did. So I looked at Wikipedia to try to just get a list of wars, and they listed the wars of the 20th century, but they actually listed them from 1900 to 2002, so we'll just roll with that. And they actually had three separate pages to cover the wars that happened in these hundred or so years. So they had one page of wars from 1900 to 1944, one page of wars from 1945 to 1989, and one page of wars from 1990 to 2002. And there are literally hundreds of wars that were fought in that time. I tried to count them, but I lost track. I was at 50 wars. And it was only 1903, so I stopped counting. But in all fairness, some of those are listed as uprisings or rebellions or revolutions or mutinies. So not all of them are wars in the traditional sense that we think of wars. But still, there's been a whole lot of violence in war or warlike actions or threats of war in this hundred or so years from 1900 to 2002. So many of these listings are just one political party trying to overthrow another by force. Communists or people of another political party or persuasion trying to take over a country. A lot of those political parties within countries are fighting. They're warring with one another. And most of those, um, that's what most of those are on the list that I looked at. Now, I didn't look at all of them, but a lot of those are just Political party A is trying to overthrow political party B, so there's some kind of revolution, or there's some kind of uprising, or there's some kind of conflict, and sometimes they're successful, and sometimes they are not. Another one of the reasons that people went to war on this that I, I noticed keep coming over and over again was some border conflicts leading to war. Other countries wanting a piece of land from another country. Hey, I want what you have, so I'm going to come and take it. Whether it's what I, I want what you have, just your land, or I want your resources, or whatever it may be. So, so those were kind of the two things that stood out to me looking at those wars of, hey, we don't like your political party anymore, so we're going to try to overthrow you by violence and have a war or an uprising or a rebellion or something. Or, hey, we want your land or we want your resources, so we're going to come in here and take that. Now, 
Make no mistake about that, friend. Those are not justifiable wars. Those are not justifiable wars. If I am of this political party and you are of another, I should not declare on I should not declare war on you just so I could take over. That's not justifiable. Now, if that political party is harming helpless people or doing immoral things to their citizens, that may be justifiable to come up and say, hey, you can't do this anymore. And if we need to take you over so you can stop harming innocent people, then that's what we're going to do. But if someone looks at a country that is capitalist and says, I don't like capitalism, so I'm going to take you over, that's not justifiable. That's not a justifiable war. They're saying, I don't like your political party. I don't like your economic system. I don't like whatever it may be. If it's not a moral issue or if it's not an issue of harming and hurting people. So if you just look and say, I don't like your political party, I'm going to take you over. Not justifiable. Not justifiable. So if a country says to another, I want that piece of land, I'm going to kill your citizens to get it. Not justifiable. If a country says, I want that land for three sources, oil, gas, metals, whatever it may be, not justifiable. What I would say is a classic example of a justifiable war is World War II. So Germany unprovoked, uh, Germany goes on these unprovoked attacks of Poland and other countries, and then some countries side with Poland and go to war against Germany. So Germany goes into Poland, I want to go, we're going to take you over, and this is our land now. Poland tries to defend themselves, and then other countries also get involved in that war. So Germany starts those attacks unprovoked. The Pol Poland doesn't attack first, Germany does. For no good justifiable reason. Hey, I want your land. I want you to be a part of us now. That's not a justifiable reason to go to war. And then, of course, there's the concentration camps, the killing of Jews and minorities, killing of people who were powerless to fight back. So they've unprovokingly attacked people and they are killing innocent people who have no ability to defend themselves. So if they're is ever a justifiable reason to go to war, it would be to stop the Nazis and what they were doing. Even if Pearl Harbor had never happened, if that had never happened, I believe it still would have been justifiable for the United States of America to go to war with Germany to stop the Nazis. Now, once Pearl Harbor happens, uh, it makes it unmistakably justifiable. Uh, you can't even make an argument how it wouldn't be justifiable once, once American land is attacked for them not to get involved. It absolutely, 100%, no doubt about it, becomes justifiable at that point. But I'm saying I don't think you even need Pearl Harbor to justify the United States getting involved in World War II because of what the Nazis were doing, attacking people unprovokingly because of how they were killing helpless and defenseless, defenseless people. It makes it justifiable for someone to step in and stop them and say, hey, you can't do this. And if we have to use force, if we have to go to war to make you stop, then that's what we're going to do. So it meets those criteria of the just war theory pretty much in every way, that we look at the seriousness of human life, we look at other ways to go about this. The first thing we do is not just react and go to war over the little things, but we try to do other things to prevent this, or try to do other things to stop this, or to find some other kind of resolution, and then when that can't be found, if people, have, if a country has attacked somebody and has been uh, unprovoked in their attacks, and if they are killing, harming innocent, helpless people, if they're doing that, that's a pretty justifiable reason that is the justify a justifiable reason to go to war and the classic example of a justifiable war is world war 2
justifiable reason for people to go to war against Germany. Germany has no has no justification for why they went to war, but those who went to war against Germany have justification for that, so they enter into a just war to stop Germany and the Nazis. But remember the first part of the just war theory. Remember this, that taking human life is seriously wrong and should be attempted to be avoided at all costs. War should always be a last resort. And that connects uh, intimately with presenting a, a just cause. All other forms of solution must have been attempted prior to the declaration of war because the taking of human life is a very serious thing and we want to avoid that at all costs if we can. But if we've done everything we can to try to stop this war and it still hasn't worked and innocent countries are still being attacked, innocent people are still being killed, then, then we can justify entering into a war against those who are doing the attacking and the killing. Now, there may be a lot more to say about the justifiable war theory. This is just kind of a brief overview, but just war theory not only talks about what the justifiable reason is to enter a war, but it also talks about how armies should conduct themselves with fighting and how they should not target or kill people of the country who are non-military or, or non-army. They should not kill citizens who are unarmed. They, and there are some other things like that, too, as well as the just war theory of how we treat prisoners and how we treat captives, uh, what kind of weapons should or should not be used, and all those different kinds of things. So there, there's some more that goes into that justifiable war theory. But here is something else that we as Christians should like about Gethin. They do not know what war is. And if only we could say the same. But ah, my friends, there will be a day. There will be a day when God recreates heaven and earth and we live with him eternally. And there will be no more war, no more battle, no more fighting, no political parties, fighting one another, no border or resource disputes, no more killing, no more pillaging, no more plundering. If you are looking for a warless world, that will happen one day. It'll happen in God's kingdom. That is where it's found. Not today, but there will be a day and we hold and we take hope in that and we look forward to that day. But until then, we need something to guide us in what is and what is not appropriate for declaring war and fighting in wars. And I believe that the just war theory is the best thing we have in this world as it is, as we currently live in it, that allows us to be able to decide what is okay and what is not okay when it comes to war. I would love to say here, back to the book, but I can't even say that yet because we haven't really gone into the book. We're just kind of taking care of some of the carryover from the last episode and we're already over 20 minutes in. So you can see perhaps why I split this into two episodes. We're well, you know how long we're going to be here because you've already seen how long this is, but I don't know yet. So you know something at this point, just looking at the time of this, that I don't know right now at this point in time. I don't know. that That's an interesting thought. All right, let's get to the book. And in chapter 11, we are in S. Draven's point of view. And the first line of chapter 11 is this. I am not hopeful, yet all events show cause for hope. I am not hopeful, yet all events show cause for hope. Is that true? 
It's interesting to me that this is S. Raven's point of view is he does not seem to be a very optimistic character to me. But is that true? Do all events show cause for hope? I suppose the answer for this question might depend on what or who you have your hope in. If your hope is in a person or a system or a movement or a political party or money or power or your career or position, I do not see how you could say that all events show cause for hope because all those things have let people down and continue to let people down over and over and over again. So I don't know how some of those things could, I don't know how those things that we listed there could provide hope in all events. However, if your hope is in Jesus, then in all events, in all situations and circumstances, there is cause for hope because your hope does not come from yourself or what you can do or what this world offers, but it comes from Jesus. Hope that Jesus is with you. Hope that he is victorious. Hope that all things will get better. Hope that we are not left alone. Hope that one day we will be with him in a warless, perfect world. Do all events show cause for hope? I think that depends on what or whom your hope is found in. If you have a hope that is in something other than Jesus, then no, then no, not all events show cause for hope. But if your hope is found in Jesus, all events, no matter what, we can find some hope because our hope is not found in events or found in this world or found in the way things happen here, but our hope is found in Jesus Christ. And that is a solid foundation for our hope to be built upon. Back to the book, and in chapter 11, we also meet some who are called the 33, and they are 33 people who make up the Oregorian government. Now, the Oregorian is made up of 33 districts, each of which sends a representative or a commensal to the nation's capital. So that's where the 33 comes from. There is a minority of the 33, only seven, who support open trade, but they think maybe they can convince a majority to join them and accept I's offer to join the ecumen. Then we read about I giving Ash's money to Estraven, and we read something interesting. This is a bit of a long passage, but I think one that is worth reading and worth discussing. Here's what we read. He gave me Ash's money as one would give a hired assassin his fee. I have not often been so angry and insulted him deliberately, and I insulted him deliberately. He knew I was angry, but I am not sure he understood that he was insulted. He seemed to accept my advice despite the manner of its giving, and when my temper cooled, I saw this and was worried by it. It is possible that all along in uh, Aaron Rang, he was, speak he was seeking my advice, not knowing how to tell me that he sought it. If so, then he must have misunderstood half and not understood the rest of what I told him by my fireside in the palace, the night after the ceremony of the keystone. His Shifgrathor must be founded and composed and sustained altogether differently from ours. And when I thought myself most blunt and frank with him, he may have found me most subtle and unclear. His obtuseness is arrogance. His arrogance is ignorance. He is ignorant of us, we of him. He is infinitely a stranger and I a fool to let my shadow cross the light of the hope he brings us. So, what Estraven has come to understand is that he doesn't know I because him and I are from different cultures, they're from different places, they're from different planets, and they have different experiences, and they have different social norms. So they don't really understand each other 
here as Raven comes to, to realize that they don't understand each other in the way that they thought they did, because what's expected from one is not expected from the other because they're from, from different places, from different planets. So they don't get, they, they don't see th things from the same perspective. So they don't understand what one is doing to the other. And maybe there's something that we can learn here. Maybe we can can all do more to understand each other instead of just assume others will understand who we are, or what we mean, or where we're coming from. Because it's not always the case that they do. It's it's probably probably often not the case that, that people are understanding what we're assuming that they understand because we all come from different homes. We all come from different places. We have different perspectives. And and maybe you've even been in different cultures than other people have. So we have all these different things that, that can build up some division there that we maybe assume is not there. So then we think that somebody's taken something one way when they've really taken it another and we didn't mean for it to be taken that way. So there's, there's some separation here between I and Estraven. And Estraven's made some assumptions and he thinks that I would understand those and I has made some assumptions that he thinks Estraven would understand, but they don't because they don't really know each other. So they need to work more on that to build that relationship, to build some bridges in instead of building walls. There's a beautiful word that I think this describes this that John uh, Koenig made up in his book titled The Dictionary of Obscure Sorrows. So actually, there's a lot of made-up words in Koenig's book. Uh, he sets out to, to fill the gaps in our language of emotion by making up some new words. I actually like this, this project uh, that, that, that Koenig is on, uh, the, the Dictionary of Obscure Sorrows. And one of the words that he makes up in here is this word called sonder, S-O-N-D-E-R, sonder. And Sonder is the realization that each random passerby is living a life as vivid and complex as your own, populated with their own ambitions, friends, routines, worries, and inherited crazies. An epic story that continues invisibly around you like an anthill sprawling deep underground. I think what Estraven done here has done here, he has Sondered when it comes to I. He has had a realization that the the eye's life is vivid and is complex in his own, and he has his own ambitions and friends and routines and worries and inherited craziness and cultural understanding and biases and all these different things. He has come to that realization, and once he comes to that realization, he comes to respect I more, but also to work to to get to truly know who I is, truly get to know him and the complexity that makes him up. So perhaps we all need to sonder a little better as we seek to understand people and tear down walls that divide us and in place of those walls build bridges that bring us together. May we all sonder. And I think part of sondering is admitting our ignorance. That doesn't mean now sometimes what it actually means. So sometimes you hear people talking about you do something or you say something that's kind of smart or sarcastic and someone says well you're ignorant for that no that's not what ignorant means that ignorant doesn't mean that you're being a smart aleck or, or you're kind of mouthing off or, or you're getting sassy with somebody that's kind of the way that it's used sometimes now but what ignorance really means it just means you don't know something you just don't know it that, that that it's something that you haven't realized something that you haven't learned so maybe that's a good place to start admitting that we don't know everything 
and seeking to sonder with others so that we can get to truly know them and the complexities that make them an individual as we seek to know them, truly know them, and build bridges over what's divided us. I is meeting with the 33 back in the book, and S. Raven doesn't know much about it. He's not a part of the inner circle, so he doesn't really know much of this anymore. And at one point in chapter 11, we read something that I'm still working on trying to figure out what it means. So at one point, there's a mention of, of Yigi, who's one of the government officials from Oregorian, just in case you don't remember him from the last episode. And also for context uh, of this, uh, Mishnori is the capital of Oregorian. So, so just letting you know that Mishnori, that's the capital there. But here's what we read in chapter 11. To oppose something is to maintain it. They say here all roads lead to Mishnori. To be sure, if you turn your back on Mishnori and walk away from it, you are still on the Mishnori road. To oppose vulgarity is inevitably to be vulgar. You must go somewhere else. You must have another goal. Then you walk a different road. Yigi in the Hall of the 33 today said, I unalterably oppose this blockade of the grain exports to Carhide and the spirit of competition which motivates it. Right enough. But he will not get off the Mishnori Road going that way. He must offer an alternative. Orgorian and Carhide must both stop following the road they're on. In either direction, they must go somewhere else and break the cycle. Yigi, I think, should be talking of the envoy and nothing else. To be an atheist is to maintain God. His existence or his non-existence, it amounts to much the same on the plane of proof. Thus, proof is a word not often used among the Handrata. Who have chosen not to treat God as a fact, subject either to proof or to belief, and they have broken the circle and go free. To learn which questions are unanswerable and not answer them, this skill is most needful in times of stress and darkness. All right, so I told you that was a little bit of a long passage, but there's a lot to break down here. First of all, what is meant by to oppose something is to maintain it. I think what that means is that when, when, when someone is against something, they have to have that something to be against. So I'm going to try to use an example here that should offend no one, except for maybe the Big Sock Consortium. So let's say that I am against high socks. Not that I am for other socks. I'm just against high socks. That, that all, all I'm about is being against high socks. I don't like them. That's what I'm against. I'm not really for anything, but I'm concentrating more on being against something than I'm concentrating on being for something. So if my platform, if my life is anti-high socks, I always need there to be high socks so that I can have them to be against. Because if there's no more high socks, if those have been eliminated, then perhaps I've won on my platform. But, but now, now what am I going to, now what do I do? No, no, no. I need to have those high socks there so I can always be against them. So if I'm opposed to them, I need them there because that's what I need to have to be in opposition. So if you are always against something, you need to maintain that something so you'll always have it to be against. Which is why later S. Raven writes, to be an atheist is to maintain God because many atheists 
they need something to be against, and that something is God. Because they do not know what they're for, they only know what they're against. And they need to maintain what they're against because that's their platform, not being for something else, but being against God. And if that's your platform to be against God, then you always have to maintain the idea of God because if you're opposing that, you need it there to be opposed, so you have to maintain it. I think that's a really interesting idea. And the question here becomes, then, what are you for? Are you for something or are you only against something? So what are you? Are you for something or only against something? Are you one who is more likely to oppose things? Or are you a person who knows what you are for more than you know what you are against? So this is even an interesting idea within Christianity. We could look at something and we could look at people who are opposed to, let's say, sin. That we are opposed to it. And we should be in the sense that we are not for sin. So we should be opposed to that. But if that's all you are, that we should always be fighting against sin, that we should always be resisting sin, that that we should be opposed to sin, that we should be looking down. Pretty soon we start focusing a whole lot on sin, and then your platform becomes something where you have to maintain sin because you have to have that to be against. So instead of looking at a platform and saying that we're going to focus a platform on being against sin, instead what we should do is take a platform and look and say we are going to be for righteousness or we are going to be for holiness. And part of that is being against sin, but that's not our main platform. Our main platform is not focused on what we oppose. It's focused on what we are going for. It's focused on what we're, where we're going, not what we're going against. So it's this interesting idea of what is your focus? Are you more focused on what you're opposed to? Because if you are, you need to maintain what you're opposed to so you can have that to be opposed to. Or you can have a different perspective where you're not so much focusing on what you're opposed to, But your main focus is on what you're for, what you're reaching for, what you're striving for, what you're trying to become instead of what you're trying to oppose. So I think it's a really interesting idea here that uh, to to oppose something is to maintain it. I think to some degree that is true especially when it's looked at from that perspective of if that is what your life is about, if that's your main platform, if that's what you are focusing your life on is being opposed to something. You need to always have that there to be opposed to. So what are you for? Are you for something or only against something? Are are you more likely to be focused on what we should be opposing or what we should be for? And the question there then is, what are you for? And what are you living for? In this quote, S. Raven ends up by writing, to learn which questions are unanswerable and not to answer them. This skill is most needful in times of stress and darkness. I'm not so sure about this. This may be true if you have no hope. Again, we come back to that idea of hope. But if you do have hope, if there is hope in all events, which S. Raven has written, if there is hope in all events, then then why are you learning some what questions are unanswerable? Or unanswerable uh, what questions you're not going to answer? And why is that skill most valuable in the darkest of time if all events lead to hope? It, It seems to me that if Esther even truly has hope, he should be able to ask any question and not fear the answer. But here he seems to be taking some some solace in being able to find out which questions cannot be answered or what questions he doesn't want to get the answers to and then not even asking them. And I think that comes back to the idea that Esther even 
perhaps really doesn't find hope in all events. So uh, continuing the chapter, uh, Opsil and Yigi ask I to make radio contact with the ship. But chapter 11 ends with Estraven not so accidentally running into I and telling I that his life is in danger because some of them oppose him and they do not trust him. And then he advises I to not make contact with his ship as Opsil and Yigi have uh, asked, asked him to do. But we don't know I's response to this uh, warning because Estraven doesn't write about it in his journal and the chapter ends. So, chapter 12 is one of those chapters that does nothing to advance the main story and it's a text that was written some 900 years ago and doesn't have much for us to discuss. So we'll move on to chapter 13 and back to I's point of view. So after Estraven's visit, I goes and tells Opsil and Yigi that Estraven has come to him. Estraven seems to know a lot, and he has advised him to do the opposite of what they've asked. They tell him that Estraven is just trying to have some kind of power and influence like he used to have. He's just trying to maintain that. He's just trying to establish it. But don't worry about him. Then don't worry about it. But I should have worried about it because later that night he is arrested and he is taken to jail. And he asks the guards if the 33 know about this and they say, Oh, the 33 know about this. They've actually ordered it. So then we read this, that the guards, uh, from I's point of view, uh, the guards got me strapped on a, uh, pull down table, stripped me and injected me with, I suppose, one of the vertical drugs. I don't know how long the questioning lasted or what it concerned as I was drugged more or less heavily all the time and have no memory of it. When I came to myself again, I had no idea how long I had been kept in Kunder uh, Shaden. Four or five days, judging by my physical condition, but I was not sure. Now, the drugging of a prisoner, that's pretty serious. And I would actually argue that that is morally wrong. This is not the way that a prisoner should be treated, but I isn't even being charged with anything as far as we know. He doesn't know what he's done or why he is under arrest. He is a prisoner, but has no charges brought up against him. But yet he's still being drugged with some kind of truth serum. That's what that's getting at there with this vertical drug, some kind of, uh, of truth serum that he has been injected with. So that is not the way that people, even if they are prisoners, even if they have been accused of some serious crimes, which I has not been accused of, even if they are, they shouldn't be treated that way. That's a wrong way to treat prisoners. And it would actually come back to our just war theory when we're, we can apply that to other areas of life, too. So we could say that that would be wrong for prisoners of war, but that would also be wrong for prisoners uh, of who have committed crimes or in, in jail, that we should still have a way that we treat them. And, and that's something that we could look at there even to, to get that kind of overlap area of life of tr how to treat prisoners, no matter what kind of prisoners they are, and giving them, drugging them against their will with truth serum. Not right. I would argue that's more morally wrong, not the way that prisoners should be treated. So things have taken a big turn here for I, and they are not going to get better anytime soon. The next thing I remember is that he's in the back of a caravan with 20 or 30 others. He doesn't know for sure how many because there's no lighting and there's no windows in the back of this van. Someone dies on the first night from a beating from the guards. Here's what we read about that. The man happened to be next to me on the right, and I took his head on my knee to give him relief in breathing, so he died. We were all naked, but thereafter I wore his blood for clothing, on my legs and thighs and hands, 
a dry, stiff brown garment with no warmth in it. That is so heartbreaking and really captures the terrible conditions I and the others are in and the way that prisoners should not be treated. It's really well writing and again Le Guin paints a picture with her words and it's a heartbreaking picture that she paints just to show how terrible these conditions are that I has found himself in. It's also in this chapter we learn that in uh, Karhidish there are 62 words for the various kinds of stages, ages, and qualities of snow, which gives us some indication why Gethin is also known as the planet Winter. And in the midst of these terrible conditions of starvation, thirst, humiliation, beatings, and death, there is one thing that stands out to I, the kindness of the other prisoners. Those who were least resistant to the cold were kept in the middle of the group so that they could share a a little bit of the, that body heat with others, and I is one of those ones who's re- least resistant to the cold. He's not from this planet, so they let him be in the middle of the circle of this group so help to help keep him warm. And they also give water to those who are most vulnerable and try to make sure everybody gets a little bit, but really try to make those who are sick or those who are struggling get water every day. And it's acts of kindness, even little ones, that often shine brightest when they are done in contrast to the darkness of evil. So when kindness and goodness can be seen in people when they are in the midst of horrible situations, those little things, those shine so bright in contrast to that darkness that is there. I think we see that here in these people. Eventually, the prisoners are taken to the, and check this name out, they are taken to the uh, Pulafin Commensality Third Voluntary Farm and Resettlement Agency. Voluntary? That doesn't sound so voluntary to me, but it does sound very Nazi-ish, however. And adding to the mistreatment of the prisoners, they're given drugs to keep them out of Kemmer to control them even more. And here again, we return to talking about sex with a passage in this chapter that is very interesting and needs to be discussed. Within the context of the guards controlling the Kemmer cycle of the prisoners, we read this. Being so strictly denned and limited by nature, the sexual urge of Gethians is really not much interfered by society. There is less coding, channeling, and repressing of sex there than in any bisexual society I know of. Bisexual here meaning uh, any society that has both men and women, male and female. That's what he means there as we are as humans. That's what he means here by bisexual. So there's less coding, channeling, and repressing of sex there than in any bisexual society I know of. Abstinence is entirely voluntary. Indulgence is entirely acceptable. Sexual fear and sexual frustration are both extremely rare. This was the first case I had seen of the social purpose running counter to the sexual drive, being a suppression, not merely a repression, if if produced not frustration but something more ominous perhaps in the long run passivity here we see some of the ideas of the sexual revolution of the 1960s coming through as the sexual revolution challenged traditional views regarding sex with much of society not viewing sex outside of marriage is okay so before the 60s there's this idea that the sex should be saved for marriage and the sexual revolution of the 1960s that idea is, is rejected and that idea is, is fought against so but here on Gethin, society doesn't really interfere with sexual urges, and that is what the sexual revolution of the 60s wanted. They didn't want other people, society in general, to tell them what was or was not okay when it came to sex. 
They wanted freedom or liberation from social sexual norms. And it seems on here on Gethin, they have that. That abstinence is entirely voluntary. Indulgence is entirely acceptable. Sexual fear and sexual frustration are both extremely rare. So there's little fear or frustration. Certainly giving into the free love idea associated with the sexual revolution of the 60s. We see here that indulgence is entirely acceptable. Of course, when I use the term free love, it means a sexually active lifestyle with many casual sex partners with little or no commitment. That idea of free love. That if you want to indulge, that's perfectly acceptable. That's not a problem. That just, if it feels good, do it. If you want to do it, whatever you want to do, go ahead and do that because, because you can have freedom and there can be liberation in that. So, which is better? Which is the better way? Sex being saved for a monogamous marriage or that free love kind of attitude? Well, if this isn't your first episode, I bet you know how I'm going to answer that. And if this is your first episode, why? It's a two-part episode, part two of a two-part episode. So go listen to part one and then come back and listen to the rest of this one as well. But I'm going to say, tell you that sex is best saved for a monogamous marriage. But why? I mean, if we all have a sex drive and sex feels good, why don't we just do it all the time with all the people we want to and just have that freedom and liberation? Because God has a better way. And why is God's way better? Because God's way is the healthy way. The only way to allow you to be truly physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually healthy is God's way. Now, sex is a physical act, but it is more than a physical act. It's emotional. It's a deal. It's a mental thing. Some may even argue that in some way it's a spiritual act. Our bodies, our minds, and our souls are affected by sex. How many people have you known that hook up with a lot of other people and it distorts their view of themselves? Their self-worth becomes affected. Their ability to trust people is affected. And of course, being sexually active with multiple people can lead to sexually transmitted diseases that affect your physical health. So the more sexually active you are with more people, the greater likelihood that you're going to have that it's going to affect your health and affect it negatively. Your mental health is going to be affected. How you view yourself, your self-esteem, your self-worth is going to be uh, impacted by that. Your spiritual health is going to be negatively impacted by that. And you're not going to be physically healthy as you could be either. As There's so many different things that can happen with multiple sexual partners. But God wants you to be healthy. And he wants you to be holistically healthy in body, in mind, and soul. When it comes to sex and being holistically healthy, the best way to do that is God's way in a a monogamous marriage between one man and one woman. Now, the culture in America, in large part, is saying something different, something very different. But those are just lies and lies that have led to millions of people and the majority of, of, of entire generations not being holistically healthy, not being healthy in body and mind and soul because sexual Life and sexual activity matters. It makes a difference. It makes a difference how you feel about yourself. It makes a difference with your body. It makes a difference with the relationship that you have with God. All those things are affected when we there are there's sex involved. But but God's way is better. Why? Be, be, because you don't you don't have those things that that impact you negatively. If you have a healthy monogamous marriage, that you don't have this these things where where giving into sex influences how you feel about yourself and your self-image and your self-esteem and your worth. 
that it doesn't have these physical effects on your body. If, if you and your partner have waited until marriage to have sexual relations, then you're not going to give each other STDs that are going to negatively impact the health of your body. And if you're doing this with God in the middle of all of it, then, then it's also a, a, a spiritually healthy as well because you're doing things God's way and you're living according to his ways, not giving in to your own urges and desires and doing things your way and causing separation between you and God and sin. So, so when you come here and when you do things God's way, it makes you holistically healthy, body, mind, and soul. And that's why God's way is the best way because it's the healthiest way. It shouldn't come as a surprise to any of you, but God knows what he's doing. And when he tells us to do these things, sometimes we throw up our hands and we're like, why? Why should we do these, this this way? Why should we have sexual ethics according to what God has told us to? Why should we do that? Well, if you want to be healthy, that's why. God's way is the best way. He knows what he's doing, and it can make you holistically healthy to live according to how God wants us to live, especially in regards to, uh, in regards to sex. So we can look at that and see that God's way is the best way. Back to the book and at the work prison. I am not going to call it a voluntary whatever, whatever, because it's a work prison. So at the work prison, I and the others are working in the lumber industry, and there's no hospital there. You either work or die. And political prisoners like I undergo questioning with the aid of truth serum every five days. So again, they are not treating their prisoners. They are not treating their captives well. And I is getting sicker and sicker, and he meets a person named Azra, who he befriends. And although they cannot speak much because there's a language barrier, uh, they do have a friendship, but Azra does not survive to the end of the chapter. And I gets called in for an examination, and he is so sick that he cannot walk to his appointment, but must be carried to it, and then he doesn't remember much after that. In chapter 14, we switch back to Estraven's point of view, and Estraven knows something is going on and eventually finds out what has happened to I and is able to get word to King Argaven that I has been imprisoned. He tells Argaven just in case I was able to signal his ship to come to the planet before he was taken prisoner, so at least somebody knows what's going on if this ship arrives. Uh, He's able to get word to Argaven by going to the Carhide Embassy, which he says automatically... Estraven believes that automatically puts a target on his back. And he knows that winter is coming. Winter is coming. And he is worried that I will not be able to survive the winter. So he heads towards the labor prison and begins to think of how he could rescue I. He gathers supplies and hides them as he forges. Uh, He forges papers saying that he's a paroled convict given orders to report to the labor camp for guard duty as part of his parole. So I gets into the the prison uh, labor camp pretty easily. And I don't know about you, but up until now, I was not the biggest fan of Esther even. But that changes for me in this chapter. Him forging papers and walking into a prison with the intent to save somebody who does not deserve to be there and to help set that prisoner free, it makes me a fan of Esther even. I love how he just walks in there. And he's like, I'm, I'm walking in here to get this guy out. So he's walking in there. Um, with those plans to, to save I, and it makes me a fan of him. But S. Raven steals a gun from a cook in the prison, and nobody notices that. And then S. Raven is put on the midnight shift, and he stuns I with the gun, and then carries him out, telling the other prisoners that he's died, uh, which is actually a pretty clever thing to do. And S. Raven has activated his superhuman strength, so he's easily able to carry I out and 
he disables the, an electric fence surrounding uh, the the prison on the way out. So Estraven sneaks Eye out of the prison, and after several days of nursing Eye back to health, he's well enough to actually be aware and to talk to Estraven. I doesn't understand why Estraven would break him free from the prison, but Estraven explains that it, he believes it's his fault that the Eye came to Orgorian in the first place, and therefore he feels responsible for his imprisonment, and he's just trying to make amends. And we find out that Estraven has always truly been on Eye's side, but the Eye's not always seen or understood that. But Estraven has always been on his side, and he wants he wants Gethin to join in the trade uh, with the Ecumen. And this chapter ends with Estraven saying that he would like to learn mind speech from Eye. In chapter 15, the two wonder what is best and where to go to get out of Orgorian. They decide to try to cross something called the Gorbin Ice, which sounds very cold to me. Estraven steals food for the journey and knows that it's wrong, and, and, and knows that it's so wrong that he won't even talk about it, and he's distraught over it, but, but because stealing is a serious deal on Gethin. It's one of the most despicable things someone can do in their culture, but Estraven knows that's the only way they can survive, so he goes and steals that. So well, that's something that they would have in common with the Christian faith, that thou shall not steal. And, and Estraven knows that, but these desperate circumstances have allowed him to go and do what he knows is wrong. He's He's willing to do that to to be able to help his friend and to survive. So he, he crosses that, uh, that, um, he crosses that moral boundary that he probably can never see himself doing, but he comes up with a reason why he could. So they, um, they form this plan to be able to get out of Gethin and it's quite the ridiculous plan. They're planning to travel uh, some 800 miles in the bitter winter cold. 800 miles. I used to have a, a, a roughly 600 mile drive to college when I w- was an undergrad. And that was a ridiculously long car ride, d- ridiculously long in a car. Uh, but they're planning to go on foot in the winter and they have snowshoes and all these different supplies that have been gathered and some of them have been stolen. So it's a, this kind of ridiculous plan that they have, but they really have nothing else, no, no other option. And then there's something worth discussing in their conversation. Estraven asks why only one envoy is sent to a planet when trying to get them to join the Ecumen. And here's what we read. I says, the first envoy to a world always comes alone. One alien is a curiosity. Two are an invasion. Estraven says, the first envoy's life is held cheap. I. The first envoy to a world always comes alone. One alien is a curiosity. Two are an invasion. Estraven replies, The first envoy's life is held cheap. And I says, No, the Ekman really don't hold anyone's life cheap. So it follows better to put one life in danger than two or twenty. It's also very expensive and time consuming, you know, shipping people over the big jumps. Any anyhow, I, I asked for the job, is what I says. But I says something here that I really like. The ecumen really doesn't hold anybody's life cheap. The ecumen really doesn't hold anybody's life cheap. And neither does God. Every life, your life included, is valuable to God. And how valuable? Well, you are worth enough. 
that Jesus was willing to die for you. That is the price Jesus was willing to pay for you, his own life. You have value to God. You are worth something to God. You are precious to God. He does not hold your life cheap, but he decided that your life was worth giving up his life for. That's how valuable you are to God. I like that the ecumen doesn't hold any life cheap because no one's life is cheap. God has proven that to us by sending his son. Jesus has proven that to us in what he has done, that you are valuable, that you have been bought at a price. That price was the life of Jesus. That is just how valuable you are to God. Back to the book, and I and Estraven are on their journey, and Estraven kills some animals for them to eat, but it makes I sick. The meat from those does, so Estraven forces him to rest before they had planned on resting, and I takes this as an insult against his manhood. But Estraven, not having a masculine sense of pride because he is genderless for most of the time, Estraven didn't mean it as an insult. He's just saying you're getting sick and we need to rest even if we haven't planned on it. So here it seems to be some there seems to be some criticalness of the macho masculinity mindset that so many men have. And I have to say that not everything that happens that is critical to men is a criticism of their masculinity. Again here, Esther even is just suggesting, hey, ah, you're not feeling so well, let's rest. And he thinks that you're saying you're not really that much of a man because you need to, you're not feeling well. That's not what he's saying here. That, that being he's being critical of him, but he's not being critical of his masculinity or of his manhood. He's just saying, hey, you, you need to rest. And that's okay. So not everything that's being critical against man is an attack on your manhood or your manliness. So again, these two are just continuing to get to know each other better as they seek to sonder with one another. And we should seek to sonder with those in our lives. So chapter 16, we are back to Estraven's point of view. And I think one of the things Le Guin does really well here is capture the longness and the mundaneness and the boringness of this journey that they are on. At times reading about this 800-ish mile journey, at times reading about this journey, I felt like I was on this journey with them because the book was dragging on. But that just shows how good of a writer Le Guin is, that she can make you experience what the characters are experiencing. It's really well done, but this is a journey that takes hundreds of miles and and several weeks, goes into months, and sometimes I felt like I was on that with them, and she just does it really well, letting us experience what they're experiencing. In this chapter, we uh, also finally find out why this book is titled The Left Hand of Darkness, as Estraven tells I, a hand-drawn saying. Here's what it is. Light is the left hand of darkness, and darkness the right hand of light. Two are one, life and death, lying together like lovers and kemmer, like hands joined together, like the end and the way. Well, what does that mean? Oh, you understood it too? Well, that's good. We can just move on. All right, let's talk about it a little bit. Remember last episode when I said that Le Guin expressed interest in Taoism with giving an introduction to her? Well, Taoism holds that humans and animals should live in balance with the Tao or the universe. And this is often represented through the yin-yang symbol. Uh, And the darkness in the right hand of light and harmony balance being represented. And 
light is in the left hand of darkness on the yin yang and the darkness is in the right hand of the light so if you can picture that in your mind what a yin yang is and how they kind of maybe are hands holding something and that left hand is the white hand holding uh, the the darkness that is there the um the the light is the left hand of darkness and darkness the right hand of light so if you can kind of picture those as hands holding either darkness or holding light so the light is the left hand of darkness and the yin yang the darkness and the right hand of the light harmony and balance being represented uh, i i think and a few other people on the internet seemed to, to think this too that this is a reference to taoism and the yin yang and the idea that living the the you, there needs to be living in harmony and balance with the universe in fact, in chapter 19, I actually draws a yin-yang symbol and asks S-Raven if he rec recognizes it. And S-Raven says that he does not. Then I says this. It's found on Earth and in other places. He lists a couple other places that we've never known before that he's just gone to. So I says it's found on Earth and in these other places. It is yin and yang. Light is the left hand of darkness. How did it go? Light, dark, fear, courage, cold, warmth, female, male. It is your yourself, Theorem, which is S. Raven's first name. It is yourself, Theorem, both and one, a shadow on snow. So he even has a tie here into this draw of the, the yin-yang and how that uh, represents to, to the left hand being the darkness there and the darkness, the right hand darkness be, being the light. So I think there's just a reference there to the Taoism and living in harmony. So I think that perhaps that's why this is titled The Left Hand of Darkness. And now you know that if my understanding and interpretation of that is correct, we know now why this book is titled The Left Hand of Darkness. But also in their conversation, Esther even asks I how women are different than I. And we read this. Esther even, tell me how does the other sex of your race differ from yours? He looks startled, and in fact, my question rather startled me. Kemmer brings out the, the spontaneities in one. We are both self-conscious. I have never thought of that, I said. You never see a, you've never seen a woman? He used his Terran language word, which I knew. I saw your pictures of them. The women look like pregnant Gethians with larger breasts. Do they differ much from your sex and mind behavior, or are they like a different species? No. Yes. No, of course not. Not not really, is what I says. But the difference is very important. I suppose the most important thing, the heaviest single factor in one's life, is whether one is born male or female. Okay, I has a lot more to say here, but I think I just need to stop there. Is the most important thing, the heaviest single factor in one's life, is, is the heaviest single factor whether you are born a man or a woman? Whoa, that, that, that's, that's an interesting question. Is, is that the single most important factor to be born, a man or a woman? Is that really what it is? I think the answer to that is interesting. If it is the most important thing that there is, if, if that is right, if he is saying here that the heaviest single factor in one life, life is whether you're born male or female, if that is true, then there must be a difference between biological males and females. Because it matters which one you are born as. So if it, you would say it does matter, that yes, that is the most important thing, that is the heaviest single factor in one's life, you would be acknowledging the biological difference between males and females, which is a problem for some in the culture today. So if you were to say, yes, 
I agree with this, you would be recognizing that difference. But if you say no, then what is the most important thing? What is the heaviest single factor in one's life that you, if you say no, what takes the place of that? What is the single most important factor about a person's life? Here's what I would say. That you, both male and female, everyone who is listening to this, you are created in the image and likeness of God and are valuable to him. The most important thing about you is not if you are male or female. It's not where you were born or what family you were born into. The most important thing about you is that you were created by God, you are made in the image of God, and you are loved by God. Because God does not just look at you as a male or a female. He looks at you as a whole person. He looks at you as more than just your body, more than just your gender. But because both male and female were created in God's image, and that is the most important thing. The most important factor for you is that you are made in God's image and that he longs, he desires, he wants to be in a relationship with you. A relationship that saves you from your sin and sets you free to love and be loved and allows you to take hold of what is truly life, living with Jesus, both now and in the world to come. What is the most important thing, the, 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 the single most important factor that you are created by God, made in his image, loved and wanted by him? Back to the book, and we continue with what I was saying. He says, I suppose the most important thing, we'll, we'll just pick up with this. I suppose the most important thing, the heaviest single factor in one's life is whether one's born male or female. In most societies, it determines one's expectations, activities, outlooks, ethics, manners, almost everything. Vocabulary, uh, semiotic uh, usages, clothing, even food. Women women tend to eat less. It's extremely hard to separate the innate differences from the learned ones. Even where women participate equally with men in society, they still, after all, do all the childbearing and so most of the child rearing. And then S. Raven says, equality is not the general rule then? Are they mentally inferior? And I says, I don't know. They don't often seem to turn out mathematicians or composers of music or inventors or abstract thinkers. But it isn't that they're stupid. Physically, they're less muscular, but a little more durable than men. Psychologically, and after he had stared a long time at the glowing stove, he shook his head. And what I basically goes on to say is that he really doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> he has kind of forgotten, does, doesn't know much about women, and has kind of forgotten about women and what they were like because it's been so long since he's been with them. Because he's been away from, from women in his own, uh, women on earth, and has been with the people on Gethian for, Gethin for so long that he's kind of forgotten what they're like, and maybe he never really knew that much about them to begin with. But in terms of uh, equality between men and women, obviously we are not where we need to be in America. We can do better. But men and women are equal in God's kingdom, both made in God's image. God makes both male and female in his image. And we talked some about that in the last episode. So we'll, we don't need to go over that again. In chapter 17, we have a very strange creation myth story that the only thing worth mentioning here is that it tells about how the creation of people happened. And when the, when the children are born, each of the children born uh, ha have a piece of darkness that's within them that follows them wherever they go, even by daylight. So, so this darkness follows them and where they're at. And it's 
reminiscent to me of original sin and that sin nature that we're all all born with. And we've discussed this several times, so we don't have to go into that too much, but I just thought that worth mentioning that uh, interesting idea here that we read this creation myth, but part of that creation myth is that all the children are born with darkness, a piece of darkness that follows them where they go. And I think that relates to original sin. In chapter 18, we go back to I's point of view, and we continue on this months-long journey with I and S. Raven, and I really feel it in Le Guin's writing. At one point on their journey, S. Raven enters Kemmer, and they wonder how sexually compatible they would be and if sex can happen between the two, but thankfully they do not try. There is one thing to discuss from this chapter, however, that's significant to us and worth pointing out. S. Raven asks I why he came alone again. He comes back to this idea here. He asks, why? He said at last, why did you come alone? Why were you sent alone? Everything still will depend upon the ship coming. Why was it made so difficult for you and for us? So so he really asks this question again and really tries to, to get an answer here because S. Raven thinks that I's attempt to get them to join the Ecumen would have been more successful with more of them. But here's what I's response is. It's the Ecumen's custom, and there are reasons for it. Though, in fact, I begin to wonder if I've ever understood the reasons. I thought it was for your sake that I came alone, so obviously alone, so vulnerable, that I could in myself pose no threat, change no valence. Not an invasion, but a meager messenger boy. But there's more to it than that. Alone, I cannot change your world, but I can be changed by it. Alone, I must listen, as well as speak. Alone, the relationship I finally make, if one... If I make one, it is not impersonal and not only political. It is individual. It is personal. It is both more and less than political. Not we and they, not I and it, but I and thou. I and thou. Now, the I and thou is a theory on how to view life and others by the Jewish philosopher Martin Buber. Now, I'm not sure if this is where Le Guin got this from or not, but it's very Buber-esque. An idea, he even uses the phrase I and it and I and thou, and it's kind of wrapped up within this I, it, I, thou theory that Buber has here in Le Guin. So it would actually kind of surprise me if this was not, if Le Guin did not get this from Buber. Um, but here's what, what Buber says about this I and it and the I and thou. First of all, he says the attitude of the I towards an it. There's the attitude of an I towards an it, towards an object that is separate in itself, which we either use or experience. And then second, there's the attitude of the I towards thou, in a relationship in which the other is not separated by discrete bounds. So the it of the I-it refers to the world of experience and sensation. The I-it describes entities uh, uh, as discrete objects drawn from defined sets. So if you think of a relationship as as just looking at somebody and saying the most important thing about them is that they're a male, the most important thing about them is a female, the most important thing about them is this, the most important thing about them is they work here. If you are, uh, if you're looking at somebody with that limited kind of view, it, it sets up an I-it relationship because you don't think of the person, you think of an identifier for that person. You're not thinking of them in a way that's related to Sonder. You're thinking of them in a way a very related. A very limited one-way kind of, this is the one word that I think of when I think of them. It's very limited to that. But in contrast, the the word pair, I, thou, describes the word of relations. This 
is the eye that does not objectify any it, but rather acknowledges a living relationship. So you're not just limiting people to these identifiers of man or woman or this job or that position or this power or being from here. We're not limiting people to those, but we're looking at people more in depth than just labeling them in a certain way. So simply put, I-it is a relationship of subject to object. So if you have an I-it relationship with people, you as the subject look at those other people just being an object. What can I get from them? What can they do for me? What kind of, You look at those as those kinds of things. You look at other people as an object with the I-it relationship. But instead, what Buber is saying is that we should have an I-thou relationship, which is a relation of subject to subject. And it comes back to this idea of sondering, doesn't it? That we need to look at people not as objects, I-it. No, we need to look at people as people, I-thou. And not just as people, but we need to, what we need to do as Christians, we need to look at people as people that God loves. We need to look at other people as being someone that Jesus has died for. Every person you meet is a person that Jesus died for. So that means that you will never meet a person whom Jesus has not died for. He's died for everyone. So everyone we meet is somebody who Jesus has died for. And we need to keep that in mind when we have an I-thou relationship with others, subject to subject, is we are not just looking at other people as objects and limiting them to certain identifiers that takes away from who they are. As we, and when we do that, we are not sondering. So this idea of the I-thou relationship we should have comes down to, again, this idea of sondering and looking at people and not just reducing them to certain limiters or certain or certain identifiers that takes away from their personhood and, and makes them an object. Instead, we need to be looking at people as people and looking at people as people who Jesus died for. We, and, and we need to love those people. We are commanded and we are told as followers of Christ to love those people and to remember the love that Jesus had for them, that Jesus placed so much value on them that he died for them. So we need to keep that in mind when we interact, when we meet with other people. We need to saunder. Chapter 19, and we are back to I's point of view. After a very long and dangerous journey, Estraven and I finally make it to Carhide some 81 days after they set out on their journey. And they go from different smaller camps of people. And it's here where we read about the, the, the people in the camps. This is what we read about them. The roads, despite frequent heavy snowfall, were hard packed and well marked. There is always food in our packs put there by the last night's hosts. There was always a roof and a fire at the end of every day's going. So they go here to these different small villages. As they travel throughout this as they, they continue on their their way back to Carhide, and the people that they find in these villages are giving them food. They're giving them shelter. They're giving them a place to stay. They're making they're they're making a way for what they need and giving them provisions. And I thought that was a pretty cool that the, the, they were to do that. And it reminded me of Matthew twenty five verses thirty four through thirty six. Then the king will say to those on his right, "Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world." For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison. You came to visit me. That's what these people in these camps did for them. They gave to those who were in need. They gave them food. They gave them shelter. They gave them heat. They gave them warmth. They gave them 
a, a, a place to stay to help them on their way. So I think I just thought that was really neat, and it it reminds me of that uh, that very familiar passage from Matthew twenty five with what those people did. It also reminds me of the golden rule, right? To do to others what you would want them to do to you, to treat others how you would want to be treated. The golden rule found in Matthew 7, verse 12. Back to the book, an eye gets to a radio tower and is able to send a signal that will wake up those in a state of suspended animation that's on a ship so that they can come down to the surface of the planet. And where the radio tower is, Estraven has an old friend whose name is Thesicher. And they are staying with him. However, Estraven is exiled from Carhide, and now that they're back in Carhide, he's not allowed to be there. And Thesicher tells the authorities about Estraven and his location. So Estraven overhears Thesicher on his radio, turning him in. So Estraven and I flee for the border of Orgorion. And at the border, there are guards that are there. And I wants to make a plan on how to get around them, but Estraven, he's on skis because they're out in the snow and it's winter. He um, he skis down the hill directly towards the guards and ignores their warnings and shouts to stop. And they open fire. And Estraven is shot. And I holds his friend as he dies. Then we go to chapter 20. And I is taken to a nearby city and imprisoned. They don't really know what to do with him because he's been on this traitor side who is Estraven, they believe. He's been there, so they don't know where to send him. They don't know what to do. But he, he's in the care of a physician who tells him to rest. But I finds it hard to sleep because he's having nightmares about his time in the van that he had on the way to that hard labor prison camp that he was in. And I wonders why Estraven did what he did. And he wonders if maybe. That was always his plan, uh, was to was to get killed, if that was always his plan. And after new, but after news of I's escape and Estraven's death, um, we're told that the the governments of Carhide and Orgorion have undergone a lot of changes. Many of the thirty three have been replaced, and Orgorion um, with with people who are um, in favor of the open trade with Yakuman, and there's new prime ministers who are in Carhide. So uh, King Argaven comes back into the mix and he calls and to meet with I and uh, I is uh, determined to get Gethin to join the Ecumen and believes um, that that's why Estraven died, that he died for that cause so that the Ecumen would be able to join, that, that that's what Estraven gave his life for. Yeah, but Argaven wonders why Estraven betrayed him in Carhide. But I explains that Estraven believed that if one country on Gethin joined the Ecumen, then all would follow suit. So he really didn't care who joined first. He just wanted someone to join. And once he didn't think he could talk the people of Carhide into that, he just decided to go over to the people of Orgorion and see if he could talk them into it. So uh, Argaven says that Estraven was working with the open traders in Orgorion the whole time. And he asks I, uh, you tell me that was not betrayal? And I says, it was not. He knew that whichever nation first made alliance with the Ecumen, the other with, would follow soon, as it will, as Sith and Peroder and the Arpegolo will also follow, until you find unity. He loved his country very dearly, very dearly, sir, but he did not serve it or you. He served the master I serve. The Ecumen? said Argaven, startled. I not, I says no. 
mankind. A couple things here. People, mankind, as I says here, people should not be the master of your life. That is reserved for Jesus and Jesus alone. But we should be serving other people because to serve other people is to serve Jesus, the master, as we have already read, uh, you know, that passage that would continue on in Matthew 25, that what we do for the least, whatever we do for the least of these, we do for Jesus. Whatever we do for the least of people, we do for Jesus. So to serve others is to serve Jesus. But Jesus is our master, not people. So we need to serve other people, yes, but they do not, we, they are not our master. People make a bad master. They're in, that's not a role, that's not a position they are supposed to fill. But Jesus, Jesus is the great master whom we are to serve. And in serving Jesus, we also serve people, yet people are not our master. That's reserved for Jesus. So I's ship comes down and I mentions how strange they look as they are men and women coming off the, the ship and they're not genderless like the Gethians. Uh, so it's very, very strange for him as he looks at them and, and realizes just how different they, they are. And he's been on Gethian for almost three years at this point. So seeing them is interesting for him. But by spring, his crewmates have been working with all the governments of Gethin to get them to join the Ecumen. And as the book ends, I decides to go to where Estraven was born to give Estraven's journal to his family. And I meets with Estraven's son, uh, whose name is Sorv, as well as Estraven's dad, whose name is Esvens. And, um, yeah, Estraven's son, Sorv, is a result of Estraven kemering with his sibling, Ar- Arik. And we talked some about incest in the last episode, so we're not going to get into that again. But Estraven has had a child with one of his siblings. So it is is what it is. And again, we talked about that last episode. So if you want to know more about why and how that's wrong, you can go back and listen to that one. But Estraven's dad is still upset that Estraven is known as a traitor. And then we read this. The king will recant. This is what I says. The king will recant. Theram, Estraven, was no traitor. What does it matter what fools call him? The old lord nodded slowly and smoothly. It matters, he says. That's Estraven's dad. You crossed the Gorbin ice together, Sorv demanded. You and he? And I says, we did. I should like to hear that tale, my lord envoy, said old Esvens, very calm. But the boy, Theram's son, said stammering, Will you tell us how he died? Will you tell us about the other worlds out among the stars, the other kinds of men, the other lives? And that's the ending line in the book. One thing here is I really like how Esvens says that it matters what people call Estraven. It matters what his legacy is. I like that. And it does matter what your legacy is. It does matter what people think about you. It matters how people feel about you and their opinions of you. And they matter in the sense that we are to represent Jesus to the world, and we need to make sure that we are doing things that are a good representation of Jesus, because we might be the only Jesus that some people see. So what do people think of when they think of your name? Because that matters, because you're not representing just yourself, but you're representing Jesus. So what do people think? What is the first thing that comes to someone's mind when they hear your name? And are you representing Jesus well? Because it matters. What people think of when they think of your name, it matters. And are you representing Jesus well? And that does it for part two of The Left Hand of Darkness, where we have discussed topics such as war and the just war theory, 
hope, sondering, sex and society, men and women being created in the image of God, the I-it and the I-thou relationship, and much more have been discussed here on episode 9, focusing on the second half of Ursula K. Le Guin's classic, The Left Hand of Darkness. I would love to hear what you think. I like Le Guin's writing ability, how she paints a picture with her words, and she just takes you to a place with her, I think. I think she's a great writer and does a really good job. But what about you? Did you like the book? Is there anything I missed or something that I overlooked, something that you liked, something that you disagreed with, something that you would want to have more of a conversation with? I would love to hear from you with any thoughts, ideas, suggestions, etc. You can uh, find us on find me on Twitter and Instagram at Theology and Sci-Fi. Again, we spell Sci-Fi the right way around here, S-C-I-F-I. So Twitter and Instagram, both Theology and Sci-Fi. Facebook, you can find me at Theology and Sci-Fi, the podcast, or you can email me at theologyandsci-fi at gmail.com. I hope to hear from you. That would be great. I would love to have that and continue this conversation and to know what you think about this. Well, in the next episode, we're going to be going back to the silver screen, and we're going to look at Dune Part 1, the movie that was released last year in 2001. So we'll be looking at Dune Part 1, the movie that was released last year currently. At the time of recording and the time of release of this episode, Dune Part 1 is available on HBO Max and also available on another of umber, uh, a number of other streaming platforms that you can rent to watch just to let you know where we're headed. And if you want to go and watch that before listening to the next episode, uh, I really enjoyed this on-screen version of Dune and excited to talk about the movie uh, Part 1 here for Dune. So, so I look forward to that. Well, thank you for listening. This has been fun. I can't wait to do it again, and I hope to hear from you. I truly appreciate uh, your listening and and sticking with me this far, and I would love for you to tell your friends, to tell other people about this, to try to grow and and get the word out more about this. So if you've enjoyed this podcast, if you think you know somebody who would benefit from listening to it, please tell them about it, and we'll see if we can grow this. And hopefully as we do that, we can Continue to learn theology together through science fiction. I think science fiction is such a fun vehicle to learn this, to, to learn theology through. And that's really what we're trying to do here. And hopefully we do that and you can grow in your relationship with God. And through this podcast, bring glory and honor and praise to God for he is worthy of it all. So please tell your friends, not just for the sake of getting more downloads, but tell somebody If you think that there's something that they could learn about God or that they could help their relationship with God, or maybe just even an introduction to who God is, if you think any of those things could help through that podcast, through this podcast, please, please let them know. And again, if you have any questions, if you have any concerns, comments, if you want to continue, continue this discussion, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram, Facebook, and the emails I gave. You can also find me on Reddit. I have a Reddit account now, just Theology and Sci-Fi. If you look for that subreddit, I'm on there, and you can contact me through Reddit as well. Again, thanks for listening. This has been fun, truly, and I cannot wait to do it again. For Theology and Sci-Fi, I am Derek V. Trout. A sharp-eyed inspector would have been suspicious of those battered papers, but there were few sharp eyes here. <laughs>